Hey everyone, welcome back to the Inking Out Loud podcast. Today, we are returning to the Acts of Cain with a special collaboration series. Joining me is Craig Hanks from The Legendarium. Hey everybody. <laughs> and we are discussing days four through seven, so pretty much the last half of Heroes Die. You can check out our episode on days one through three on The Legendarium, or you can get access to both if you're a Patreon supporter of either podcast. But I think we're going to jump right into this one. Uh, I'm not going to do my traditional, you know, three minute long summary. Uh, we have already covered this book on Inking Out Loud and on Legendarium. Uh, <laughs> That's true. So, uh, you know, you can check that out if you need a refresher on the plot. But we're also going to be talking through the, the plot of the second half of this book anyway. Um, but, you know, this is... This is a book now, Craig, you've read it twice. Yes, indeed. And I'm on number five. This was the, the <laughs> fifth time I've read it. How do, uh, look, look, can I stop you there and ask you a question, Drew? How do you keep track yeah. of that? How do you know it's been five times? Because after, after a little while, after like the third or fourth read, maybe, I'm just like, yeah, I've read it a bunch of times. Like, ask me how many times I've read The Lord of the Rings and The Silmarillion. I have no idea. <laughs> um, I... I just remember, um, I would say I probably, I typically lose track of how many times I've read something when I get around like nine or 10. Oh, wow. I, you know, this, um, this is going to be a theme of today actually, because uh, you have a better memory than I do. I got to the end of this book and I'm like, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> like I had no idea oh. about some of the stuff that had happened. Oh, that's fun. Sorry, I completely derailed you. What were you saying? No, no, you're good. I, I My first question was just going to be, you know, like comparing your reaction the first time to the second time. Um, Yeah, it's uh, my, my favorite example of this concept right now is The Witcher season one. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to spoil anything major <laughs> or... Uh, anyway, if you haven't seen it, you should see it uh, if you're into these sorts of things. But The Witcher Season 1 basically has a very complex um, uh, structure. Structure. And then yeah. it all gets pulled in, uh, pulled together in the last episode or two. And you kind of see what they were laying all these threads out for, where they kind of seemed weird and random to begin with. Anyway, and so mm -hmm. the second time you watch The Witcher Season 1 with the ending in mind... Suddenly everything makes a lot more sense. You're connecting to the plot and the characters a, a little bit better, uh, at least for me, you know, and I've watched it three times now and I'm like, oh man, okay, I'm really getting into the the lore and the, uh, the background of all the stuff that's going on. This was very much the same way where I knew broadly, <laughs> like I said, specific, <laughs> some of the specifics surprised me again, uh, but I knew broadly where we were going uh, and where mm -hmm. we would end up. So I was able to relax into the story a little bit more. And I, I can't remember if I said this on the first episode, but some or something like this. But yeah, basically, I just I got to I, I got to see the tapestry a little bit better instead of living the tapestry. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I know the first time you read it, you mentioned that there was like uh, like a little bit of a learning curve, like getting your head around. Because it's a weird premise, right? Like it's, 
you're you're dropped in a, a fantasy world and then you're getting references to like Elmer Fudd. Elmer Fudd, and yeah, that's like the big one. Visual like VR stuff, and you're like, wait, what? Um, but I I also think it's really interesting that you're you've now read this twice, but you haven't read anything else in the series because for me, I didn't read this book a second time until I'd read all four. Okay, and and so like getting getting a second time perspective but a different second time perspective mm. is cool. Like going back to the Witcher, that's actually how I watched that show. When the second season came out, I had already seen the first season twice. Um, and I oh. like this way of consuming something because it really cements that base for you mm-hmm. to carry you forward. Um, Cause that's the thing with a fantasy story like this, with most of these fantasy stories, there's a, a steep learning curve of understanding the world building the magic system the in this case the technology that they're using uh there's just a lot that goes into it um and a lot to learn and so if you can get that base that foundation now that i've read the first book twice uh, i feel much more prepared to go on to the second one you know it's funny like this is typically how i read or consume shows, I guess, um, that are ongoing. Like I think of the wheel of time or the stormlight archive, I would reread everything up to, you know, the book that came out, the book that's coming out. And then, then I, and et cetera, and so on and so on. Uh, but I don't tend to do that with completed series. Mm. I didn't do it with the black company or the gap cycle or book of the new sun or whatever. And so that's, but that's fascinating. Like, well, if, if I, if I were in a different situation, I might not have done it this way. I like that I'm doing it this way, but the thing is we didn't plan to go on with the series on the legendary. This was an author shelf episode that we did with, uh, with Scott Lynch. And, uh, I wish I had the episode number handy. Go, everybody go search it. It was fun. Um, you were on that episode. Yeah. Um, what what was <laughs> see, I've derailed myself. Oh, but but, but the nature of the legendarium is that yeah. I'm I'm constantly propelled forward to the next thing that's put in front of me. Um, mm-hmm. Especially with a lot of author shelves that I've been doing the last six months or so, where it's like <laughs> read my own book. Yeah, occasionally <laughs> something very short and usually nonfiction, uh, you know, and just like really outside the fantasy genre. Cause I don't have time to fit in another door yeah. stopper while I'm, while the train is rolling forward. Right. So, so I'm yeah. glad that we're doing this because I, I really enjoyed it the first time and wanted to go on and I probably would have, but now that I'm in this situation, I like it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I just think it's, it's interesting that I, I choose to read through things the way I do. And there is that difference because like I reread books for a purpose Mm. when there's an ongoing series. I'm like, oh, Stormlight 5 is coming out soon. I better reread the first four so that I'm (laughs) fresh for like what's going on. Yeah. And and I'm like, but I don't do that. And especially nowadays where I don't typically read straight through series anymore. um, I, I pretty much always have three or four different books going on at the same time. And so like, uh, for instance, this spring into the summer, I started, uh, the, the book of the long sun, 
and I started The Prince of Nothing by uh, R. Scott Baker, and and I was reading Kane, and I was kind of like cycling through these, and and now like I just started reading the second volume of Book of the Long Sun, and I'm like, oh, like where was I again? Like, you know, and it, it's just it's weird. Like it's been five months since I read the first book. I'm like. Like, where's where's that choice there mm. of, is it worth my time to reread this to refresh myself? Or do I just throw myself into something? Admittedly, this is like Gene Wolfe, solar cycle, complicated. <laughs> do I just throw myself into it and be like, I'll get it eventually, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And and The Acts of Cain is not a simple series, so. I'll be the judge of that. <laughs> <laughs> this book is far and away the simplest. Oh, I is say it? that much. Yeah. Okay, uh, um, it's it's doing cool things, uh, and maybe this is like a, a good opportunity to jump off really into the writing style and the structure of the book and and things like that. Like it's it's definitely doing interesting things. We've talked about, of course, the point of view usage where he moves back and forth mm-hmm. from the supporting cast that are always in third person to first person Kane on Overworld when he's. Yes. Can I say something about that? Actually, something yeah. that I noticed on on this uh, read through, especially toward the the end, like the bitter end, we're on day seven, climactic battle scene coming up, and he's doing a lot of POV yeah. shifts. And one thing that I <clears throat> that I really appreciated was um, that he would take a moment with the bells tolling. Right, we wake up on the morning of day seven, and every bell in the city is going, you know, all the Carolyn bells in the towers and the hand bells from the monks and whoever else, everybody's got bells and they're all ringing them. And the city like wakes up and goes crazy. Um, and then it kind of transitions into, I, I can't remember who's, I think it was Toa Saitel's, uh, point of view, um, third person, of course, but it's this seamless transition from an omniscient narrator telling you about what's going on in the world into somebody's point of view in that world. And I miss this. I, it's something I wish we got more of, excuse me, reminds me. Wow. Uh, It reminds me a little bit of the wheel of time. I'm dying here. You guys. Um, reminds me of the Wheel of Time, right? The wind comes down off the mountains and it ruffles Rand's cloak and then suddenly you're in Rand's point of view. Something mm-hmm, like that. Mm-hmm. But but it's... Um, the, the style du jour right now is to have a very, very strict point of view. Yep. If your character doesn't know it, you don't know it. Um, and I, I... I'm it's fine. I don't have any like big problems with that. But when I come across a really well done omniscient narrator, even for just a few moments, I'm like, Oh yeah, thank goodness. I really, it's refreshing to me. You know, this is actually something I had marked down as a a note. uh, And I was going to draw the comparison back to Scott Lynch, because this is something he does a lot in, especially the lies of Locke Lamora, where he'll establish a scene talking about, the city of Kamor usually starts mm-hmm. off a chapter with like, you know, the long summer of the 88th year of, you know, whatever God and, uh, and, <laughs> right. and talks about like the way 
there's a drought and everybody's sweltering in their homes and and people are miserable and and all of that and then it zooms in to like uh, he also does it a lot in um uh Republic of Thieves in the third book like there's one moment in particular i remember with like there's like a really vivid description of the this heat wave that's melting the city and then it zooms into the gentleman bastards it's in one of the flashbacks mm. and and, it, and they're all like at each other's throats because they're all miserable and cooped up and and all of that and i love the way he he moves seamlessly through that omniscient narrator giving you the big picture view and then zooming in uh and it's like it's scott lynch and matthew stover there <laughs> we know at this point they they are you know they, they're connected they have worked together and taught each other a great deal. And I think it's, I think it's, you know, this sort of thing in heroes die is likely an influence on how Scott Lynch approached, uh, you know, writing and setting scenes in the gentleman bastard sequence. So I'm going to have to read that again with that in mind one day when I stop (laughs) reading a parade of books (laughs) for the legendarium. Um, what can't last forever must eventually stop, ladies and gentlemen. It won't last forever, and then I will read for <laughs> pleasure again. I mean, it is pleasure. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I totally do. I mean, I'm still, as of the recording of this episode, I'm still officially on hiatus with thinking out loud, oh, right. and being able to right. read for pleasure for the last six or seven months has been a delight. <laughs> I'm sure. So. Yeah, absolutely. I've got groaning uh, shelves behind me that are just begging to be cleared off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but I do love, so uh, sticking to the idea of point of view here, mm. um, I love his willingness to, to spread the wealth a little bit. In the first half of the book, it's really focused just on like Kane, Kohlberg, and you get a tiny little bit of like Toa Saitel and Kirindal. Palace, maybe a, a little bit. Yeah, yeah, you get a couple of Palace Rill. And and you get a couple a yeah, couple of Palace Rill here. There's sprinkles. one major sequence. Oh gosh. But yeah, we'll get to that. <laughs> um, but we also start getting like we get a point of view from Majesty, and we get a point of view from like some random guard in the Imperial Dungeon. And we start getting a lot more Bairn and we get Talon and like, and you get Lamarack and it, it really like spreads the wealth a lot, which is interesting because when I think about the series, I think of Kane. I'm like, he's just such an overwhelming presence as a character that it's easy to forget how much is not written from his point of view. Right. Most of the book, it seems like, well, yeah, no, that's not certainly fair, in the last but... like act. There's a lot that's not from his point of view. It, as you say, spreading the wealth around, especially in the last half of the book, I, what that does for me is it preps day seven because when he gets to day seven and he does the, like he moves through 15 chapters, bang, 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 real quick. Cha- I call them chapters. They're more like yeah, sections yeah. and paragraphs. Um, but he's flipping perspectives like a whirlwind. Um, and he, he could do that out of the blue, but if he did, it would be unearned and it would feel very, very strange as readers. But because we have 
he kind of eased us in, you know, much like we're talking with the omniscient narrator. He eases you mm-hmm. into the idea of what it's like to be in Byrne's head, what it's like to be in Toa Saitel's head, who these characters are, so that when we approach that climactic scene and he's flipping those POVs uh, every other paragraph, you you don't you're not being introduced into somebody's mind right. for the first time, right? And so he's he's earning it and making it so that when you do get to that point, you're not those cuts aren't jarring they're exciting yeah right oh excuse me uh yeah it's and then when you get to a certain point of the climax suddenly those disappear and it's just Kane. yeah and you're like okay now we're at the moment and this is like on so many levels stover is incredible at building tension like even just in in like the the micro scene level some of my favorite bits of his writing are when he's establishing a scene and makes you feel like just just nervous or tense uh my favorite example of this is the the crazy moment when uh majesty marches into alien games and confronts kirandall mm. oh, and, and then she feels him coming is that what you're there's going? a showdown and she's like this shouldn't be happening like something's not right what is going on what is going on and then and then it like clicks in her head and what it's and i gotta find the you're so this is the, from yeah majesty's pov right and so it's him it's from kirandals oh it is oh okay all yeah. right i'm thinking maybe of a slightly different spot yeah majesty's like like you know trying to like dick measure with her and, and <laughs> right. he's he's they're they're playing this game of chicken and and she's realizing like he's gonna order his guys to attack like this is gonna turn into a bloodbath a nightmare and and like she, she just like doesn't understand she's like this is mutually assured destruction if he does this why would he do this and then she realizes Kane is why he would do this and she just, in the middle of this whole moment, Kirindal reached for him and caught his elbow in an astonishingly powerful grip. Don't, she said urgently, pleadingly. Don't. He's here. And like, oh. <laughs> and actually, I am wrong. You are correct. It is in Majesty's point of view. That's right, because he keeps Kirindal's. wondering, what is she looking at? What is she looking at? Um, yes. And, and uh, Abba Paslava is like whispering in his ear and can, and like, and, yeah. Can we foreshadow maybe a discussion to come in a few minutes when we get to characters? But that scene is mirrored in the final sculpture scene that doesn't actually happen with um, the emperor. So the emperor Ooh. finally realizes he looks up at his great masterpiece yes. and he realizes that with only a it, with no change in execution yes. but only a change in intent it could be Kane's face that he's trying to create in his great art artistic masterpiece and not his own and so when Kirindal grabs majesty by the elbow and says wait don't he's coming i i didn't remember who's coming i was like wait a minute did 
does Milecoth pay a visit to the slums? You know, and like, is yeah. is it Milecoth? I can't remember. And then it was Kane that was there. But the way he writes it is very much like there is a there's a power greater than any of us can comprehend, and it's almost here. Uh, and he's built up the emperor to be that. And now he's given little, little hints that Kane is maybe more than meets the eye. And then this is the, the scene where he lays out like, yeah, uh, there, there's way more going on here that, than you realize. Anyway, sorry. We'll get to that. I'm sure in the character section, but, but yeah. what cool foreshadowing and parallelism with that and the, the sculpture scene. Yeah, it's and, and he does that really well. There are a lot of moments in this book that he parallels things, especially when Hari is on Earth. There are things happening on Overworld that are echoed in Hari's uh, scenes on Earth. Like one of my favorites is uh, actually something that my cousin Pat pointed out uh, the first time we were doing our Acts of Cain episodes. I didn't even notice it. While Milkoth is meeting with uh, Toa Saitel and Baron that first time, and he brings him up to the top of the tower, and he summons, he he calls Kane, and Kane's face appears in the cloud, Mm -hmm. and then it switches to the next scene, and Kane is flying in one of these, you know, cars in the middle of a storm on Earth. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. I did not catch that. Yeah. Yeah, like... There, That's cool. And so, like, literally, Kane's face is in the storm cloud on Earth as it's being mirrored in the storm cloud on Overworld. And he does little things like this. I love. Like, ugh. But, but yeah, with the tension, though, like... <laughs> it, it's, it's crazy how effective he is that something like Day 4... The infiltration and then and then breakout from the dungeon. That that right there could be the climactic sequence of most fantasy books. (laughs) Like it's it's so good. It's so violent and brutal and intense and emotionally charged. Like he's it's it's insane. And then that's like oh we're at the we're at the halfway point. (laughs) And and then he ratchets it up again. And in day five, while Kane's on Earth, Palace Rill on the river, and Talon versus Bairn, and and she merges with Chambaraya and, and this tidal wave at one of the most spectacularly cinematic moments. Is that the end of day four or was that five? Five. Oh, five. five. Okay, yeah. Um yeah, like he, while because at the end of day four, King gets yanked because uh, he's about to expose that's Lamarack right, and right. Kohlberg panics. Yeah, um, but yeah. So day five, King's not there. Palace Rill is the focus. Like King gets a couple of scenes. He visits his dad again, which is a great moment. Uh, you know, his dad tells him the 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 simple. The simple bit of advice, you know, keep your head down and inch toward daylight. Mm, oh gosh! And 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 he tells him, like, look, you have the tools to beat them, and that's how he moves. and And he goes to Hawaii and meets with uh, Shemaya Dole, um, which is another 
fascinating scene. I could, yeah, they're both of those, honestly, like I've <laughs> said before that chapter five and day one was my favorite, but maybe his second meeting with his father is, yes, is supplanting that because it is an incredible yeah. scene. Yeah. Like, and really the Shermaya time. As well. There's so much to talk about with both of those. Yeah. But, but straight up, anytime in this whole series, anytime Hari is speaking to Duncan in any capacity is, is so fraught. They have such a, a twisted but meaningful relationship. Like, and again, this is a way that he builds tension. Like, he, he, Hari feels lost in day five. And he and that's why he goes to to talk with his dad. And he's like, I I've I'm beaten. I can't do anything. And and he feels like he has no route forward. And it's Duncan who, in his own tortuous, meandering way, reveals that that door for Kane. And then you're like, but what is this? What What is this idea that he has? And so he builds the tension of it. And then he's going to Hawaii and you're like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> it And it does, it does more than that. It reveals a door for Kane and for the reader. So it's it, what's fascinating about that line to me, inch toward daylight, is that yeah. in any other book I have read that I can recall, especially uh, kind of contemporary novels, that line would be introduced very, very early. Maybe the prologue of the book. And here we get it at the end of day four, beginning of day five, whenever it is. Yeah, Um, day five. Yeah, yeah, day five of seven. And then it gets repeated um, uh, often, but mm. somehow not annoyingly often, <laughs> at least to me, I'm sure somebody would find it annoying. But this idea of know. inch toward daylight um, becomes the central theme of Kane's journey in this book uh, halfway through the book, more than halfway through the book. Um, and But anyway, I was going to say it does more than just uh, open a door for Kane. It shows you something of his father's character as well, because he says, I can't remember the line off the top of my head, but he says, as I'm paraphrasing, that's what I've been doing. That's still what I'm doing. I'm winning. He's, yeah. he's in a mental institution in prison, basically. And he says, <laughs> I'm winning because every, you know, he doesn't have the ability to, to take many steps, but what steps he can, what inches he can take, he inches toward daylight. So in this case, He's he is uh, allowing Hari to be his instrument, right, uh, or to carry yeah. on his oh, uh, his fight. I just I just pulled it up and I'm rereading it, and it is so good. He you know he says uh, I haven't beaten it, Dad. I'm trying, but so far I haven't been able to lay a fist on it. Duncan's eyes drifted closed, and he allowed himself a rusty chuckle. You will identify the enemy. It's half the battle. Take that step, Hari. Take that first step, then just don't stop. Easy for you to say, Hari muttered under his breath, looking away. It's over for you. You lost a long time ago. Nothing's over. And I haven't lost yet. I'm still in there pitching, Hari. And there's a little, you know, bit of him 
described and he goes still taking those baby steps kiddo duncan said wiping phlegm <laughs> from his lips with a crippled hand i took another one just now just now there and that's how go. the yeah and that's how the section ends like oh oh man oh it's brilliant it is brilliant and i i just looked up inch toward daylight is is said eight times oh is that in it this book. yeah the, and the man, first one is he makes it count the then, because it, it feels yes. like 40 by the time you get to the end of the book. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's that's, but that's man. It, it takes a special writer to really nail, like a lot of people try to have a, a catchphrase or an Whoa. important. Yeah. And is this where we talk about it, Brandon Sanderson again? <laughs> oh, I mean, we could, we certainly could. Um, and he has succeeded and he has failed. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, he's, he's not quite as good as he wants to be, but he does it sometimes. Yeah. But, but man, did Stover nail it with this one. Yeah, absolutely. Like, if there's one line that's, that sticks with me from this whole book, it's inch toward daylight. Yeah. You know. <sighs> Either that or uh, what? Mm. Uh, F me like a goat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fuck me like a goat. <laughs> Because that is Sorry, also I didn't, like, I didn't know what what. Wait, oh, now, now that Rob's gone, I don't know what the swearing rules are, Drew. Uh, the, so <laughs> I, I think I made an announcement on our our first episode to to release, um, but I am I'm just not gonna censor not, not our episodes anymore. Um, <laughs> I'll still self censor in general. <laughs> yeah, like I I don't curse a ton. You're a good, cabin, but this Drew. is also. We're we're reading the Acts of Cain. There's a lot of profanity <laughs> in these books. Like if we you've didn't read the book, bother you can censoring. It. Yeah, we didn't bother censoring uh, our original episodes on these because, like, look, we're when we're quoting Cain, we're quoting Bairn. Like, oh, dude. there there's going to be some you know some four letter words in there. <laughs> actually, this is uh, I'm. I, it's funny that we bring this up because this is something I wanted to talk about. A little bullet point as far as style goes. We've talked a little bit about mm, the structure. Mm-hmm. Um, and a couple of scenes, but as far as styling goes, I did notice that he's very deliberate with his cursing where some authors just use it. It's a, it's a crutch yeah. or they feel like they should because, uh, it's what readers want, whatever. Um, when you are outside of Kane's POV, uh, with the exception of Baron, right. But yes. for everybody else, it, there's little to no profanity. Uh, and when Cain, so Cain is obviously, uh, he uses these words <laughs> a lot, right? He uses them in his, uh, what do you call it? The subtext, the, monologue. the, the monologuing that he does. Yeah. Uh, what do they call it? There's a term for soliloquy. it. Soliloquy. Yeah. In his soliloquy, he uses it a lot. And then also in the third person POVs that we get of Cain, he uses it a lot. Basically, so Cain mm-hmm. swears a lot. And most of the other characters don't. Uh, and it, it's a testament to Stover's discipline that he doesn't make all of his characters as profane as Kane. Right. And then you get Baird. Then you get Baird. And Baird, like, Kane curses. Baird is profane. That There you go. Baird is disgusting. Yeah. Like... I I don't know when oh. to talk about Baron. When we get to characters, I I do want to go off on Baron a little bit. I mean, let, let's let's just let's just go. Let's talk about. Don't do it. You don't do it. Um, 
have you ever read a point of view that disgusts you more than being inside Baron's head? I'm not sure that I have. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, have have you gotten to uh, Broken Earth yet, Jemison? I don't think you've read those yet. No, I have not. Okay. I I own it. I did buy it. Right. uh, But I haven't read it yet. Um, It's... uh, yeah, I'm not not going to spoil anything. Don't worry. Uh, but when I finally made it through, it took me two tries to make it through the first book. When I finally made it through, I realized what a masterpiece it is. It is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but the first, or sorry, yeah, in that first book, she does something interesting with the the point of view. She does uh, second, or sorry, uh, second person, second yeah. person uh, in one of her POVs. And it puts you into that character's head in a way that I hadn't experienced before. And it was very interesting and very like kind of discombobulating in a good way. Um, When I, with Baron, he's not doing anything that interesting with his tense, but with his POV, he does, he doesn't shy away. And this is what makes this book grimdark, right? He doesn't shy away from putting you in the head of somebody who is pure evil, sociopathic, uh, violent, narcissistic, um, sexually depraved. And, and he shows you very clearly who this person is, what he desires from life. uh, And, and doesn't, he pulls no punches with Baron. And, it is disturbing to read. I would not give this to, uh, you know, any anybody who I considered uh, immature in the slightest. <laughs> you know, I, I'm struggling to say for kids, you know, because like even I, I know some twenty somethings who I'd be like, yeah, you probably shouldn't read this. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and thirty and, and you know, a lot of people just generally. Anyway, but point being, if you have the stomach for it, it is a fascinating but revolting look into the mind of somebody who really does uh, experience violence as sexual pleasure, um, or who has a sort of um, childlike complex with Myokoth. You know, he he's. He, he becomes a child uh, while at the same yes. time maintaining his, you know, so-called manly bravado. What a fascinating character. And I can't stand him. Sorry. Yeah. I can't stand him. So there's a deep <laughs> cut for everybody. No, I, I love that. Um, that dynamic between Kane, Baron and uh, Kane and Baron. And then between Baron and Milecoff and by extension, excuse me, between Kane and Milecoff, because Kane and Baron are such bitter, evenly matched rivals. But Baron has this like childlike relationship. I mean, one of the first things we get with Baron is Toa Saitel calling, calling him a catamite. And uh, basically like... Word. Uh, uh, a young boy who is uh, a boy kept for sexu- homosexual practices. E- yeah. Yikes. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's, that's a word I and, could have gone my whole life without learning, but all right, here <laughs> we are. Uh, but it, it really establishes this, this dynamic where if Cain and Bairn are evenly matched, 
thus is Kane also childlike to Milecoff? And we go through the evolution of Kane throughout the book in his relationship to Milecoff. And it really feels like it sometimes that he is a child in Milecoff's hands and he's utterly at his mercy mm. until the until. end. And I think, I think there's until one his conversation moment. with his father. Uh, yes. And the way, uh, the moment it's expressed is when Kane returns to the iron room and he walks in and he's like, you're not going to kill me. Yeah. He, he, because of his conversation with his father, he realizes you can't do this to me. You need me. This like, and, and he, he takes the agency from the conversation, uh, from Milecoff and Bairn never does that. So Bairn remains a child. Whereas Cain achieves adulthood in, in this relationship. And we'll see this as we go into Blade of Taishao. Um, oh man. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Oh, just wait. Um, but, but yeah, like from the very beginning, Baron is used or is described using language that frames him as a child who's being taken advantage of. Yep. But, and, and he's so immature when we get his points of view, he's utterly self-centered. Um, I, I, you know, there are a couple of moments that, stand out for like how disgusting they are. Um, like his, his peering through the window about and... the family. Yeah. yeah. Um, or, or when he encounters the elf girl in the alley. Mm. Um, but the one that, that really stands out to me is when he climbs the battlement over the river. Okay. And, and he just like, he, he just starts laughing and 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 he yells into the night i love me i love being me yeah like and and like like what a what an utterly selfish and immature thing to do you it, know like I, there are plenty of people who you, you know you can love yourself in a healthy way but this is not a healthy expression <laughs> of like self esteem this is this is Nothing like self-esteem. This is sick, you know? When I read that bit, I will say that felt to me like the most awkward writing in the whole book uh, because <clears throat> it, it just it just felt weird. What's going on here? Why would you write, you know, something so cheesy <laughs> as, God, I love being me, and then diving into the water? And then... As I'm thinking about it, I'm like, well, right, because Baron is super cheesy and he's incredibly immature. And so it's I I I still wrestle with that moment where it <laughs> feels a little awkward compared to most of the rest of the book or all of the rest of the book. Uh, and yet it is instructive on the character. So, yeah, I think it's purposely awkward. I right. I right. Knowing how deftly Stover writes every other character, like there, there's so much purpose behind each scene. Uh, I, I can't imagine that was a, an accident. Um, but but yeah, so so you have you have this this triangle 
in a way, you could call it a love triangle. <laughs> I think there is, there's there. obviously love between Baron and Milecoth. Sort of, yeah, sort of. In a way, I think you could say there is love between Milecoth and Kane. Sure. Certainly, from the perspective of Milecoth, Kane is one of his beloved children. And, and there, like, Kane, in some of his descriptions of Milecoth, like, he, he really goes in on, on the admiration. Uh, and not just the admiration of Milecoth's mind and, and, and his power and presence, but his physical form. Um, I don't think Cain is gay. I don't think he's bi. Uh, but I think there is like a certain undertone of homoeroticism between the two of them. Oh, absolutely. And and then there definitely is between Cain and Bairn. Right. I mean, you you look at the even the symbolism of their final battle, where you end with a sword through the groin. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of penetration in that final scene, shall we say? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and so you, you get a, a dynamic that's so like, there's so many layers to it, right? It's, and it's all done in one book. This is the kind of thing a lot of writers would develop over three or four books, you know? And it remains relatable. It's not. Um, mm-hmm. It's not just a literary device that he's throwing in there for some dramatic effect. I think there's. It, it's. Um, I, I. I'm not a gay man, but sometimes you see somebody who's like, you know what? You're making my Kinsey scale do some weird. Like the needle is is <laughs> like wiggling around a little bit. You know, <laughs> like this is a thing that happens and. And it could be a lot of different things. Maybe it's just somebody who's that good looking, right? But maybe it's somebody who attracts you to them, has a a magnetic pole Mm -hmm. that is less definable. Um, They have some charisma, some hold over you that, that makes you desire them in some way, which can be uh, confused for other feelings or mixed in for real with other, other types of sexual feelings. Right. So yeah, definitely when Kane meets Milecoth. But uh, isn't that... Are, are we getting into, like, Greek tragedy territory here where there's... Um, uh, it's like you're you're sexually attracted to your parents at some point, and then uh, you grow up and realize, you know, what what that they're your parents, basically. And uh, I don't know. I, like, I'm, I'm a little rusty on my Greek uh, mythology, but, uh, you know, you get into... Electra and, like and Oedipus, Oedipus and, Rex yeah. and, and all that. Um, anyway, so yeah, there there may be some digging to do there. I, as you can tell, have I not mean, thought about this enough to fully formulate a thought about it, but uh, maybe there's something there. I I absolutely think there's something there. This is a, uh, a story that has larger-than-life mythical figures as the central characters. Right. I think that's an easy uh, uh, parallel to draw, um, you know. And I don't know if this is in your copy of Heroes Die or if it was at the end of the audiobook. Okay. But 
But there is a uh, an interview, a conversation with Matthew Woodring Stover at the end of the ebook that I own. Um, you know, and and it covers a lot of different things, but one of the things he mentions in it. Um, I don't have that, yeah. by the way. I have the okay. I have the OG first uh, hardback yes. edition. So no, it's but it is in the audiobook, I think. No, no, no. But there it's are a not. couple of sorry. No, it's not. Oh, it's not. Okay. There are a couple of questions about the the characters and the moral complexity and and things like that. And one of them. He says, uh, there are men and women, I believe, who consciously set out to embrace and embody an idea of evil. It's better to reign in hell than serve in heaven, as someone once said. And Stover responds, and he says, now you're shifting into aberrant psychology as opposed to metaphysics. You quote from Paradise Lost. In that work, Lucifer is a tragic hero, a magnificently flawed character. And it's like, he is he is clearly very aware of you know, the, what has come before him the in terms of literature. He, he talks in this interview, he mentions uh, Heinlein and Fritz Leiber and Michael Moorcock and uh, uh, Roger Zelazny, Stephen Donaldson. Like, so he's talking a lot about not quite his contemporaries, but maybe just the generation before him in terms of fantasy. He mentions Joseph Comrade. And then it ends and and the question is how would you describe heroes die and he says it is a piece of violent entertainment that is a meditation on violent entertainment as a concept in itself and as a cultural obsession it is a love story romantic love paternal love repressed homoerotic love love of money of power of country love betrayed and love employed as both carrot and stick it's a book about all different kinds of heroes and all the different ways they die. Oh man. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. You know, wow. How have I not thought about this? Because this is, the book is called heroes die, mm-hmm. but our heroes don't <laughs> die. Did we talk about this when we talked with Scott Lynch? I don't we, remember. We didn't. We really didn't. Um, it, it's so hard when you only have, you know, 45 minutes, basically, to have a discussion yeah. about a book like this, right? I mean, we're hardly doing it justice in two hours or three hours, whatever it'll end up being. Right, yeah. Yeah, that's that's amazing. So, <laughs> it, and it's, it, if nothing else, there's the concept of um, growing up and realizing things about your parents, you know, the, uh, understanding your parents' humanity. So whether it's his actual father who's stuck in the nice, uh, nice drink, Drew, for those listening, Drew has held up a very remarkably attractive beverage. Um, there, there's his real father, but then there's also his relationship with Mile Koth, where he it kind of at the end of the book. When Mile Koth is trapped in the real world and <laughs> she and I think Shauna says something like, you know, for all we know, he's going to end up running for office and Hari's like. Hey, I'd vote for him. <laughs> He's a good dude. But yeah. so he has that respect, but it's also tempered by the experiences he went through with him and, and understanding his humanity beyond his godhood or underneath his godhood. 
Yes. Um, anyway, um, so yeah, that that concept oh, of your man, hero dying, like your your show. parent dying, right? <laughs> yeah, that's we haven't gotten into predictions, but uh, but that's I'm yeah. looking forward we'll, we'll to Blade of Tyshell. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I I want to I want to wrap back around and talk about the title of the book. Okay, go for it. So you said you're like our heroes didn't die, or did they? It's all a dream, Drew. It's all, this is all just a fever dream. <laughs> so uh, th- what I would say to that is we have to look at this on a few different levels. Uh, for one thing, the inclination is to say, well, Kane is the hero. But he's not really a hero. He's a protagonist. I mean, we have to draw he's, this distinction all the time. Yeah. He is framed as a hero in For Love of Palace Rill, as far as the uh, the the adoring masses on Earth are concerned. But as far as they're concerned, Cain died. He's paralyzed from the waist down. He's not gone on adventures again. Right. Cain's dead. Oh, so it, in that's that right. Way, he does talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. In that way, oh yeah, this hero died. There's that great line at the end where um, he says to Shauna that there's no other way that Kane would have wanted to go out than cradled in her lap, basically. Uh, yeah, and that that is how Kane dies, right? Yeah, yeah. There you go. Uh, and then, as far as the the ignorant uh, population of Overworld is concerned. Like they have no clue what what sort of like religious apotheosis assumption whatever happened, but Kane's gone, Milecoth is gone, Baron's gone. Like the as far as they're concerned, they're all dead. And you know who's not and then You know who's not dead? Lamorak. Oh, Lamrak's super dead. No, no, no. But uh, he lives on in Milecoth. Yes, that is correct. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to seeing what he does with that. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Don't. Uh, yeah. Don't say anything. Don't read say anything. Find it. out. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um. Uh. But then we we look at our other heroes. Uh, Palace Rill is like through and through the most traditionally heroic character in this book. Oh, absolutely. She's the one selflessly, you know, saving the innocents and fighting against oppression and and all of this and that. But Palace Rill kind of died too. She's part of the river god. Oh, can, can we stop there for a moment and talk about how interesting that is? Because her journey toward uh, uh, ascension basically into godhood takes her from our traditionally heroic role of like you say mm-hmm. uh, help the needy um, you know help those who have less power than you uh, so she's sneaking people out she's doing her the scarlet pimpernel act as they keep saying throughout yep. especially the first half of the book um and, and as you say, that makes her a very traditionally heroic character. And then when she achieves transcendence, she it becomes a god. She does that and realizes how little 
any individual thing or person matters. None of it matters. The only thing that matters is the whole. And uh, all, all these things, these fleeting lives and individuals and thoughts and, you know, whatnot. <laughs> it's all just gone. And yep. I don't know what to make of this. I will have to think about this for a while. But isn't it <sighs> wild that he takes a traditionally heroic character and makes them it's not lol nothing matters it's like a serene sigh nothing matters you know it's an inhuman nothing matters right it it, it it's like it, it's so what is so that removed from human morality and human sensibility and it's like because she's put in the position of godhood you're left you're left with the impression that this is the correct way to view things but is it it, it has the yeah. hero died and been replaced by something less heroic less human more removed from her humanity and then it is further complicated by the epilogue because back on earth she's Shanna Layton right and she's like hey Maybe we give this another try. Let's, let's get back together. It's so kind of like charming, but mundane. It's so mundane. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it, 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 no character in this book is simple. I love it. <laughs> it's it, even the side characters have these, these layers of complexity. The, the things we see with Majesty and Kirindal in their very brief moments. Yeah. The the Majesty the is probably the of, simplest one, right? Uh, yeah. Although he's complicated by the charm, of course. Yeah, I'm not saying he's uh, uncomplicated. Yeah. I'm saying he's the simplest one. But even Toa Saitel is like, wow, this guy is. Oh, he's, dude, Toa Saitel's a great character. He's deep. <laughs> yeah. We we get over time. We get his his story how he lost his sons in the succession mm. war and right. and the different warring motivations within him. And I, I love that. Like he, he just like gets his ass kicked by Kane. And then he's like, you know what? No, even though I like half my body's broken, I'm still going to drag myself over there and stab him in the leg with a poison knife. <laughs> <laughs> what a guy. Yeah. Right after Kane in, in one of one of the funniest <laughs> moments in the whole book. <laughs> Kane just throws the net over Milecoff and kicks him in the balls. Oh yeah, that was pretty good. <laughs> it was that one. That honestly, you call it one of the funniest moments in the book. To me, it plays a little too much like a cartoon because his eyes <laughs> bug out like so Bugs Bunny style. Yeah. <laughs> There's your That's Elmer Fudd reference so again, right? because uh, he doesn't indulge in those moments and then he just goes there <laughs> <laughs> yeah but but yeah so uh, we're still talking about heroes dying though so we have shanna shanna layton is not a hero but she lived palace rill was a hero and she changed metaphorically yeah. died and then uh, another character who I think much more fits the traditional hero archetype is Talon, 
Oh, sure. And she dies brutally. Oh, gosh. Yeah, hard pass. You know. And so like, we, we have a story with many different people. Even Milecoth, to a lot of the people in Ankana, he is a hero. Yeah, and this like is Kane something. Says, hey, again, I vote for him. Yeah. yeah, yeah, like he's that. This the uh, the effect of his assumption to Earth uh, will be explored in in Blade of Taishal. You know, the people saw him as as their god, as their hero, as the savior of humanity, and then he's ripped away from them. So, yeah, but this is why, like, this book is, is a brilliant standalone novel. Yeah. Like you can read this and be totally satisfied that the, the main character gets the girl that he won in the end. Kohlberg <laughs> got, fuck Kohlberg, by the way. Um, he, he was cast down, you know, he managed to turn the, the unjust system against, against Kohlberg and. And everything worked out. Yeah, there were losses along the way, but the story's wrapped up. Cool. But there's so much thematically that he draws forward throughout the series that, like, I tell people, yeah, you can read Heroes Die, and you can end there, and you'll be very satisfied. Mm. But it is so much richer if you read the rest. Okay. I will. I will read the rest. <laughs> yeah. And I hope everybody listening does too. Because I hope they do too. Honestly, we talked about this a little bit with Scott uh, on that episode, but he, he being Matt Stover, is just, nobody talks about him. And it's no. like, if you read just this book, like you say, you know, okay, the rest of the series, great, but just read this book. And it's like, how are we not all obsessed with this 30 years later? I, I'm not quite sure I understand how it's, I'm sure the cover has a lot to do with it, <laughs> but yes. like, maybe it was literally, I know this is a tired phrase and stupidly cliched and all that, but maybe he was literally just ahead of his time. And, and so he was, yeah, I mean, we know he was, um, but it, it's, but for those when, who love when this book came out, everybody was obsessed with Terry Goodkind and Robert Jordan. And <laughs> right. You know, like it, everybody's looking for the big 10, 15 book doorstop or Epic fantasy where you're, you're iterating upon Tolkien, right? You're taking the, the, the traditional Joseph Campbell theory of the hero's journey and you're making it bigger and brighter and more bombastic. People were all about that. This is not that. (laughs) Mm. So between the cover, the content, like that's the other thing. Weren't a whole lot of books getting published in the, in the mid to late nineties that are this violent. Um, and you know it, it was just a combination of things and then i i also think if this had come out after stover wrote revenge of the sith mm. that would have done a lot of work for him yeah yeah i mean it's kind of similar to like brandon's career brandon sanderson finishes the wheel of time and then suddenly is the most popular yep. author out there yeah. yeah yeah i could see that yeah so so yeah, like it's there's there's just so much to dig into here, even in one book. I mean, I 
I know I'm not even well read enough to get a lot of the references that he brings up in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I had to go read The Moon is a Harsh Mistress after reading this for the first time. Right. Because I didn't get the references. Um, now I do, and I think it's actually quite a lot of fun. Um, uh, Simon Jester is a great character and concept mm, in, uh, good in, reference. in that book. Yeah, and... Uh, but he, but he keeps doing this, like especially when we get into some of the later books in the series, like like he he goes like deep with the the literature, <laughs> uh, the the American canon, if you will. Uh, and, I will. And like, I yeah, will. I've, <laughs> yeah, I've read a lot of these books because I was a an English major, but I didn't read all of it. And there are definitely things in there that I'm like, is he talking about this author or? Am, I totally wrong. And I kind of think I'm wrong because it doesn't fully like, you know, uh, so it's just the more you read of this. And this is why, when I go back, you know, to, to wrap it back to our beginning conversation, when I reread heroes die after finishing blade of Tyshell, Kane, black knife, Kane's law, I'm reading this story in such a different way. Mm. The number of things that I highlighted in this about, uh, were like, I just made notes of like, wow, this is laying the groundwork for things in book two, book three, book four. You know, it. it... Can I go back actually before we get to you know setting up the rest of the series? I want to go back to this uh, idea of the American canon and all that. I hadn't thought about Ooh. it in these terms before, and so I hope you'll forgive me for thinking on my feet again we'll see (laughs) where this goes oh please do but is this a quintessentially american novel um with its with its um the way it sets up the fight of uh of uh, freedom versus tyranny justice uh versus revenge and and all those things where um it's drawing upon authors who represent, you know, for better or worse, you know, obviously it's a subjective uh, idea, but for better or worse, it's drawing upon authors who encapsulated some mindset, some um, like very specifically American mindset sometime in the 20th century. Um, there's I, I run across this sometimes in nonfiction. There's a, a political author I love to read, not because he has um, amazing insights that nobody else has had, but because he's brilliant at bringing everybody else together, synthesizing concepts and information into a single book and then presenting it to you and igniting your curiosity about digging deeper into those things. Um, and I wonder if this does a similar thing where it's like, you know what, man, the American canon of, you know, especially these sci-fi authors that he references, but not just that there's, there's a lot to read and maybe it ignites your curiosity about that 20th century American canon. Um, is this the quintessential American fantasy novel? Oh, I, I don't know about the man, but <laughs> that's a, I love this. I love this question. Uh, because I think in a lot of ways it, it totally does fit. It's, 
it it has so much of that like american mindset the the classical the american dream manifest mm-hmm. destiny but it's also deeply in conversation with it it's not just blindly accepting this is the way things should be uh i i think i mean we even get to the point we haven't talked about the fourth wall breaking that happens in the book yet oh man you reader Uh, close the book you could close the (laughs) book yeah it's one of the more brilliant bits of writing where you're like oh (laughs) he's breaking the fourth wall internally let's let's come back let's come back structure let's come back but 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 it, it that is wrapped up in this whole idea of like he is really interrogating the idea of are the things we're working toward in America and this American mindset really worth working toward? Is this the answer? And and he certainly takes a cynical outlook. Um, but he wrote this in 1998, and we're reading it in 2023. And gotta be honest, things are. There's Looking some like they're trending in a certain direction that aligns a lot with some of the things he wrote in this book. You know, so, you know, it's interesting. I don't know how much we want to get into this. I, I don't know what the rules are on your show as far as, uh, you know, politics and whatnot. So I'll try I'll try to tread lightly here. <laughs> but I, I, kind of like the, the way that people talk about 1984 versus Brave New World. I don't know if you've read those, um, but. Mm. There was a, a trend. I have not read Brave New World, just 1984. You haven't read Brave New World. Okay. So uh, for, for those who, 1984 is the boot stamping on a face for eternity, yeah. right? That's It's pure tyranny. It's oppressive, um, centralized government, you know, just treading on everybody forever, uh, to borrow a, a, a word. <laughs> um, and then Brave <sighs> New World posits that uh, that society will entertain itself to death. Um, you know, drugs and leisure become the the downfall of society. It's not that you're oppressed; it's that you are, um, yeah, you're you're entertained to death, um, like spiritual death, basically. Anyway, so there was this whole rash of articles and books and whatnot, maybe you know, ten, twenty years ago, where people were like, "Hey, Aldous Huxley was right," and and uh, uh, sorry, <laughs> George Orwell was wrong. Uh, you know, it's we're not in danger of the boot stamping on our face. We're in danger of too much TV, too many drugs, you know, whatever. Uh, yeah, yeah. So that's and that's fine. I think that's a perfectly plausible thing to say. I I bring this up because this book does something somewhat similar, where in the quote unquote real world that Hari inhabits, we have the stratified caste system that you know oppresses the lower classes so that the professional and leisure classes can have unlimited uh, resources and fun and pleasure and and all that stuff right um that that feels very brave new world versus you go to overworld is that, is that what it's called i think i'm right yeah you go to Overworld, and that's very much like Myokoth, the Emperor, uh, the Iron Fist, and the the Gray Cats, and the the boot stamping on the face. Right, right. This is absolute authority. Um, and he he doesn't ever say 
I, I, I don't feel like Stover comes down definitively against either system, but says both of them are broken and need fixing. Um, so it's, it's, I, I don't know. There's something here in 1984 and brave new world. And, and both of them are, uh, are nightmares in their own way. Um, oh, and, for sure. And there's a, it's a very, again, a very American concept. I mean, you go back, he, he references the founding fathers and Jefferson and all that stuff. And one of the things that they fought against was the idea of nobility and titles and the idea of great, you know, quote unquote, great men elevating themselves above others. And, and Cain gets uh, ensorcelled by the idea of Milecoff and seeing him as this godlike figure. Oh, it's maybe he is the best thing for these people, this benevolent God King yeah. and whatnot. And then, and then by the end of the book, like we said, after his conversation with his father, he rejects that and says, now, you know, as much as I like you and respect you, you're not a God, you're not a King and away with you. I want us to revisit this conversation as we go through the series. Okay. Yeah. I'll say that. <laughs> and because that's, I, I that's the end of it. All right. I I want to say more, but I'm afraid that my perspective on this is too tinted by... Future books. The remaining books. Okay. Um, but this is absolutely central to what Stover wanted to do with the series. Um, he's... When we had uh, when we had Matt on for our uh, uh, Lies of Locke Lamora episode, right. and we got a chance to talk to him a little bit more. I think it was in our interview episode, our separate interview episode. He talked about the idea of uh, how the world is run in Heroes Die, uh, where it's it, it's corporations it's mm-hmm. board members and ceos who who run the whole world right governments basically don't matter anymore national governments don't matter anymore right and and he basically said i don't dislike capitalism he's like capitalism has given us a tremendous amount of great things Capitalism has built a a world that is wonderful in a lot of ways. The end game of unrestrained capitalism, not so much. Right. Yeah, unrestrained anything, right? Yeah. Yeah, and that's where he's... His kind of central focus uh, of the world building of Earth in the acts of Cain is, is aiming toward. Uh, and <laughs> and I, again, I appreciate how even that he complicates, like we'll, we'll definitely talk about this uh, on, on our first blade of Taishal episode, because we're going to get a lot more about the history of earth, how it got to where it, it is in the time of Cain in the mm. time of Harry Michelson. Yeah. Um, okay. And 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 I I really am going to keep in mind this idea of the American attitude and the American uh, mindset 
as it relates to these books. Cause this is a, an angle I've never really considered before reading through it. I, yeah. I've certainly looked at the idea of the American canon of literature because he references it so much. It's, it's unavoidable, but, but the, the kind of like political or social mindset of America as an idea is not something I'd engaged with. Yeah. It's, um, somebody reading this book, like an American reading this book would see, um, shades, uh, shades, I would say very, very dark, uh, (laughs) very, very thick shades of, uh, libertarianism running through the book. Oh yeah. Yeah. Sure. Great. Um, and a lot of readers, a lot of American readers will be like, well, I'm no libertarian, right? I hold these other views. I'm, I'm no libertarian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, maybe in the American context, you're not. <laughs> but like from the entire rest of the world's perspective, you're a libertarian zealot. I guarantee you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like we, yeah, yeah. It's, it's so fundamental to our national character. And so, so that's, I, I, I'm I'm intriguing myself, Drew, with this question of whether this is, yeah. is a thoroughly American book the way I've described it. But uh, yeah, definitely something to keep in mind. I love the idea. I really love the idea. And I I'm gonna have to. I don't know, I'm gonna have to reach out to to Matt. I think and see if I can get him to <laughs> get talk about response. this a little bit at some point. Yeah, yeah, that would be <laughs> fascinating. Um. But we were, we, I mean, we've been a little all over the board. This has been a, a less rigidly structured Inking Out Loud episode. You, this, that's what makes it an Inking Out Legendarium care. episode, Drew. Exactly. Yes. It, it, it's the IO Legendarium. Structure <laughs> is for professionals, okay? <laughs> uh, no, but it's good. And, and I mean, this is a very different episode from our, you know, our first Axe of Cain, you know, walkthrough where we had a you know, a couple of new readers and, and we're a lot more plot focused. <laughs> sure. and, and heck, those were also some of the very first episodes I ever did. I oh, think, really? I wow. think Heroes Die part one was like episode 10. Oh, cool. And this, I don't know when exactly this will come out, but this is probably going to be around like 210. Oh, nice. nice. <laughs> so bit a little bit, um, uh, can I, because it, it sounds like you're going to start wrapping up, Drew, do I get to bring I was up gonna, my favorite yeah. line in the book? Oh, yeah. So this is the perfect time. I was going to okay. say we should open it to just miscellaneous conversation. Good. And then we can do predictions and final drafts and all that. Uh, favorite scenes. It, I, I have a favorite line in the entire book, and it's it's okay. completely throw away this is not an important line in the book it's not inch toward daylight or anything like that but drew close your google put your phone down look in the camera and tell me what is a flinder oh like shards of wood wow okay splinters of wood all right wow i'm i'm genuinely impressed okay i didn't know what a (laughs) flinder was i i'd never used that word but there's a line when uh, Palace Rill has all the people down in the boat, she's there with Talon, uh, and they're found out by the gray cats. <laughs> okay, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what I'm? Yeah. Okay, 
I, I'm I know exactly one of the I, lines I have highlighted. Is I'm also shocked that I found it, honestly, because I, I highlighted it in the <laughs> audiobook and then during this conversation I found it again. Um and they they bust out and go after the cats, right? There's this big explosion. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's see. The buckeye began to trail smoke through her fingers and she lobbed it gently underhand up through the hatch. It triggered five feet above the deck with an ear shattering (laughs) boom and blew the deck around the hatch to smoldering flinders. And I, I kind of stopped in my tracks and went, I'm sorry, but first of all, that's a great line. It blew the deck to smoldering flinders. Um, that, what a great phrase, smoldering flinders. Oh, fabulous, yeah. right? Uh, but then I realized I don't know that word and I didn't need to. <laughs> that yeah. is good prose <laughs> where you can take yeah. a word. It's uh, by, by putting it in context, you're alerting the reader to what this is. You're not showing off your amazing vocabulary. You're just using a slightly different word. It kind of, parallels splinters a little bit so you get the flavor of what the word mm-hmm. might be right so smoldering flinders uh but but flinder is not splinter because flinder calls to mind flames right the smoldering flinder with that if that fl at the beginning what <laughs> it, it, it's just it's probably a phrase that he spent 30 seconds on and went, oh, what, you know, splinters, I don't know, this isn't quite right, is there another, uh, yeah, yeah, I'll go with flinders, oh, yeah, actually, that sounds great, smoldering flinders, and then he moves on, <laughs> and that's it, that's the extent <laughs> of it, and I get arrested by this phrase, and go, my gosh, what a great bit of prose that was, I loved it, I loved that bit. Yeah, it's it's an underrated part of, of Matthew Stover, I, like, I don't think of him as a, you know, this like God level stylist. I don't think of him as like a, a Gene Wolf, Kaya Shante Wilson, even a Patrick Rothfuss type, you know, but, but like when you really stop and, and appreciate, I think part of it is because so much of it's from Kane's perspective and Kane's voice is so casual like like it, it it's it's casually vivid and it feels effortless in terms of like what he's writing you know the way you said that like he probably spent 30 seconds if that on on thinking about yeah. that line and in and because of that you just you just flow through it but if you stop and appreciate the way he crafts his sentences and the way he uses that voice. I mean, you even touched on it when you mentioned earlier how you noticed there wasn't a whole lot of cursing in other characters' right. points of view. He he has such a grasp on things. And when he really wants to write something beautiful, oh, he can do it. <laughs> but a lot of the time, he writes something like this that I have highlighted from earlier in that scene when palace rail is going down into the bottom of the barge she says when when palace inspected the barge's bilge a dark dank space full of an eye-watering stink of urine and decay 
like a dead turtle sunbaking in its shell for four days while being pissed on by a succession of tomcats. Like, <laughs> <laughs> come on. That is quite the image. It's, exactly. Like, that's good writing. That's good. Drew? It's, you're just like, whoa. Do but I, that is good freaking writing. Do I need to pull out the quote again? Do I need to do the quote? Um from uh, the cardinal virtue of prose. This, yeah. I, the legendarium listeners are tired of hearing about this, but maybe the inking out loud ones uh, mm. haven't heard it yet. So I, I'm going to bring yeah, it up I don't up know again. if you've quoted this on inking out loud before. I don't think so, but uh, but I'm going to now. This is from the cardinal virtue of prose. And it's, uh, it's actually an excerpt from a, a book review that was done uh, literally a hundred years ago plus. Um, and I, I love this. Uh, this passage so much that I bought the collected essays of this author, Mm -hmm. uh, Arthur Cluttenbrock. Uh, But he says, the master of prose, and I am going to put Matthew Stover in as a master of prose. The master of prose is not cold, but will not let any word or image inflame him with a heat irrelevant to his purpose. That's a key phrase right there, right? Yeah. Unhasting, yeah. unresting, he pursues it, subduing all the riches of his mind to it, rejecting all beauties that are not germane to it, making his own beauty out of the very accomplishment of it. Uh, he has his reward, for he is trusted and convinces as those who are at the mercy of their own eloquence do not. And he gives a pleasure all the greater for being hardly noticed. In the best prose, whether narrative or argument, we are so led on as we read that we do not stop to applaud the ri- the writer, nor do we stop to question him. Um, now, by that definition, this might fall flat because it did stop me in my tracks, right? I, I was marveling over the use of the word flinders, right? Like, wow, what, sure. a, what a great turn. But, but that is, um, that is a, a, it's a, a moment in a book where I am almost never stopped in my tracks. Yeah. Um, it's, I, I would call him a master of prose. He knows how to turn a phrase. He knows how to get yep. out of the way and let the story through. Um, he knows it, it, that, that idea of um, he will not let any word or image inflame him with a heat irrelevant to his purpose. Uh, yeah, so I think that that's is really a key. big, big part of it. Yeah, like he he knows what he's doing. When he's describing a dead turtle sun baking in a shell for four days, like, like that is... <laughs> That is employed with a specific purpose, and by God, he nails that purpose. Yeah, exactly. you know, and it, it's, but he doesn't indulge in these all the time. He doesn't wallow in the in the horrific, you know, violent dis- descriptions and and the profane, unless it's in specific moments when. He's like, this is what I need right here. And and so something like the theater of truth. Mm. Oh. You know, the scene with Lamarack and Master Arcadio. Oh, okay. It is oh, Lamarack. Okay. I was thinking the first in this scene in this theater of truth. Yikes. Yeah, with Lamarack where he's he's flaying him and and yeah. Well, there yeah. is that. That is rough. I'm thinking of the guy who's literally strung up by his intestines. Oh, in the iron room. Oh, sorry. Okay, my, my yeah, yeah, yeah. The theater truth is that's the like torture chamber in the where he's teaching the, the students in the yeah. dungeon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but like, 
the the purpose of that scene is to show this hidden side of Milecoth to remind us no matter how benevolent or or caring or well-intentioned I may be demonstrating Milecoth is, he is also enabling inhumane, horrific, yeah. And and so in that moment, it it has purpose to describe peeling, you know, the, the top layer of his skin back and sprinkling wasp larvae into his leg. Like, it's you know, it's horrible. It's it's difficult to read, but it's supposed to be difficult to read. And that's when you, you get to that point when he talks about in that interview, this is a piece of violent entertainment that is a meditation on violent entertainment. So it's serving multiple purposes. It's showing us within the context of the story, okay, remember, this guy has two sides to him. And bringing it to a meta level, like, Hey, I want you to think about what it means to be reading something like this. And are you really enjoying this? Is this what you're seeking out? Why are you seeking it out? Hmm. Yeah. I'm sure we'll have more to say on that as the series goes. Uh, we definitely are. <laughs> we definitely are. Because I think, yeah, yeah, I think that focus shifts a little bit. So we'll, we'll get there. All right. But, Right on. But yeah. Uh, it's how do we feel? Other... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Actually, how do we feel at the end of the book? And I know that you've, as you said before, your view might be tainted by having read the rest of the series. But are you able to cast your mind back to when it was brand new to you and he calls you out, literally calls you out as the reader? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and said, you know, are you not entertained? <laughs> basically. Yeah, basically. Um. Uh, it's I, I I don't know how I feel about that because it is it's disturbing but it's also it's a little bit like well dude you wrote the book you know uh, can you yeah can you comment against something by using it um, you know I only hired the hooker to uh, to explore. <laughs> <laughs> the the concept of the depravity of using sex workers for their body, you know, like what? Well, yeah, but you yeah, hired yeah. the hooker, <laughs> um, or, yeah. or whatever other uh, you know m- more classy analogy you might uh, come across. So I I vividly remember being stopped in my tracks when I first read that, mm. where I I I like put because uh, I was reading a physical book. I like plopped the book in my lap. I was still holding it open, but I like put it down and I just went, huh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I had to, I had to stop and, and consider that for a second and be like, you know what? Why am I reading and enjoying this? And the conclusion I came to is that uh, I'm not reading and enjoying it because of the graphic violence. Um, I do think there is inherent entertainment in violence. Mm. Uh, that, that's unfortunately, that's a result of the human condition. Sure. Um, this has been a, a, uh, a thing for as long as humans have had entertainment. <laughs> uh, but 
but I also know my own tastes and I know that I've read other books that are similarly violent and have treated violence differently and have used it more explicitly as entertainment, as shock value, if you will. And I tend to bounce off those books. Um, I, I honestly, I think this is part of the reason that I didn't particularly enjoy the first night angel book. I sure. think, Brent um, Weeks, yeah. I think Brent Weeks really leaned on graphic violence in that book as, as entertainment, entertainment value. And, uh, and, and I'm like, that's not why I'm reading these books. Uh, this book has violence in it, has really graphic violence at points in it, but the things that I love about this book are not those like in, in two episodes here, I, I haven't even talked about how friggin' amazing Matthew Stover is at writing fight scenes. Mm, oh, it's, I, we, how have we not talked about this? It's unreal. <laughs> yeah. He, he's the best. Flinders, the best. man. Flinders. Yeah. Like <laughs> the, the guy, the guy just, he knows it, it's, it's a, he has the experience. He he's trained in whatever, like twenty three different martial arts. He he fought semi professionally. He coached. He's he's had the experience of all sorts of hand to hand combat in fighting, as he describes in this book. Um, so like he knows, and anything Kane is doing in this book is like something you like if you're properly trained, you could do. And. And it makes it real. It makes it exciting. And on top of that, he has such an understanding of adding interiority to the fight so that it's not just like a clinical, he did this, he did that. Then that dude did this. And like, for me, that's how honestly a lot of like Brandon Sanderson's fight scenes come across. Oh yeah, no, they're, they're very blow by blow. Um, that's it. And then, and then uh, to make a different comparison, very different. Uh, Robert Jordan rarely got into those sorts of descriptions, especially when he he's describing uh, sword sword fight, fights. Yeah, sword play, and he's using evocative language and and naming sword forms so that you can you know he says so and so flowed into lightning of three prongs and then boar rushes down the mountain and you're like. So first off, you have a, an initial image and then you have like, okay, how would I, in my mind, how would I interpret lightning of three prongs? Okay, well, three quick jabs. Sure. Right. Or boar rushes down the mountain. These are like overhand blows, something like that. And so uh, I think Stover finds a really good balance between these these two styles, between the Sanderson school and the and the Jordan school. Um, and yeah, and he makes it fun as hell to read. Well, it's, um, it's the thing that people talk about when you, when you get those, um, clinics for lack of a better word in how to write a fight scene, it's not mm -hmm. like the blow by blow is great, but only if there are stakes. I mean, movie makers talk yes. about this as well. Like a, a fight scene with no stakes is empty, right? Uh, yeah. so uh, they, they 
they killed my dog. I must kill them back. You know, so John Wick has stakes yeah. at him. Uh, you understand the motivations, and that was that's what makes the fight scene compelling. Um, and uh, yeah, this book is a, a great example of uh, uh, how would you put it? Wallowing, not reveling in violence. Um, <laughs> if that makes sense, right? It, I, it, I would say swimming rather it, than wallowing. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Because yeah. wallowing has a like more of a negative know, a, a, connotation. Yeah, it, it is definitely swimming in violence. <laughs> uh, but but yeah, so. It's when I break down a, a lot of the the standard areas of how people evaluate writing, things like character development, dialogue, action scenes, thematic elements. Uh, Stover just like is great at all of them, <laughs> and and this is why over over now like the last eight years. This has become possibly my favorite series I've ever read. Oh, wow. uh, over Gene Wolf. Don't let Gene yeah. Wolf hear you. Okay, just keep <laughs> it on the down low. Uh, Wolf, Wolf does different things. Uh, there, it's it, he's he's so tough to describe. Um, Wolf is a richer writer. There, there is an endless amount of analysis to, to be had reading his books. Um, but they're not as fun to read. Right. That's the big thing. Well, um, this was fun to read, Drew. This was, this was a fun yeah, freaking book. Hell yeah. Yeah. Um, Do you want some of my predictions for book so, two? Oh, sorry. No, you're about we get to, to say that. Okay. I just, I just want to read one, uh, one little bit from day seven. Okay. When Kane is like about to jump out onto the sand in the middle of the arena and confront Milecoth. And uh and he's thinking about all the, the gray cats and the subjects of Kant, and he's like, I'm not worried about them though. Like they all know what's about to go down. They're all here to fight. I wonder though, if any of the civilians out there had a premonition a queasy feeling about coming here today. Hmm. I wonder how many won't be surprised when the shit explodes. How many will feel only a sickening stomach drop of recognition. How many will die with, I knew I should have stayed home, echoing in their heads. I wonder how many homes will echo with keening for the dead tonight. You know, if the situation was opposite, if someone I loved died because some guy did what I'm about to do, I wouldn't rest until I'd hunted that man down and killed him with my own hands. There's your prediction for book two. So good. Isn't this kind of, uh, it it echoes, to use a word that was in there twice, it echoes Toa Saitel and his um, hatred of Cain for what happened to his sons, right? Um, Yeah. I don't know about won't rest until yeah, it doesn't quite fit, but uh, still there's something yeah. there of the revenge narrative that could be forthcoming. And I love how, like if you go through this book, there, there are like a bazillion people who could have a revenge narrative. against. Oh me. yeah. Oh yeah. It's, I, I love how many times it references just like death follows this guy. Yeah. 
Yeah. He's a force of yeah. nature. <laughs> okay. Predictions. Uh, Here's some things. Uh, yeah. So I, n- not that I have like super specific predictions, but uh, book sure, two, sure. book two will, because Kane is paralyzed. He's not going to have a lot of overworld adventuring to do. Um, not that it, like we will go to overworld. I mean, the, the series is what it is. You can't stay away from overworld entirely. Uh, I think that there will be something going on with his dad. I can't remember his dad's name. Um, Duncan. Duncan. I I could see a situation where Duncan gets transported to overworld and magically, if not healed, then uh, it, like his mind is some of the barriers are broken down with his uh, his uh, mental blocks and illness and all that. Okay. So, so Duncan, or sorry, Duncan, Duncan, was that his name? Yeah, Duncan Michelson. Yeah, yeah Duncan goes to Overworld. Uh, the, so there you go. Because Hari's okay. going to be, he's he's a director now, right? He's, uh, he's uh, in yeah. charge of the whole thing, so he can send whoever he wants mm-hmm. to Overworld. Uh, so he's got a lot of power now. Um, Milecoth, um, does become a force to be reckoned with on earth and sets up kind of that dichotomy I'm talking about between the, uh, kind of, um, the, what, what's the word? The natural Brave new world and the, the natural state of man is to look for a, a strong man to protect you. This is why we have warlords and oh, Kings and oh, yeah, yeah. emperors and whatnot, where he's going to lead the, uh, like a populist rebellion against the kind of the end game of capitalism mm-hmm. as Stover might put it, you know, uh, these kind of corporate overlords. He's, he's going to be the capitalist or sorry, the populist answer to the capitalist overlords. Okay. So that's what my Koff is okay. going to do. Okay. What else, what else, what else do I got? <laughs> I'm trying to think if I have any other I love this. predictions I love for book this. two. Um, things will not go great for Shauna and Hari because she won't be able to achieve the same kind of uh, of transcendent nirvana that she was able to with the river. The river is going to call to her. Uh, the way Tolkien talks about elves in the ocean, like once you hear it, you, oh. you can't stay away. She has to yeah. go back and uh, and become one with the river again, threatening okay. to lose herself and therefore be forever lost to Cain, and he can't allow that to happen. And by stopping her from doing it, he becomes her enemy. I, I don't know, something like that. <laughs> oh, interesting. I'm just interesting. writing a book. At I this love point, these so. predictions. <laughs> I love these predictions. Uh, and then Cain is basically he's going to try to undermine the studio system, um, the the kind of corporate system that we've been talking about. But he's going to do it from within the system, not leading a not leading a rebellion from below the way Milecoth will, but trying to impose a different order from the top down, uh, using his new position okay. in in the corporate system. So there you okay. go. All right. Okay. I didn't write Ooh. any of these down, and so I can't be held to account for any of them because I won't remember them by the time we get to our next. Episode. I will. Oh, okay. Okay. Great. 
<laughs> I'm excited because we're definitely going to talk about some of these. Okay. All right. I'm not, I'm not going to tell you why we're going to talk about them, <laughs> but we will. Right on. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, do you want to do favorite scenes? Uh, uh, let's see. Favorite scenes. I'm not sure I have any that I haven't already talked about. I, I seen with his father. I kind of want to skip this. I mean, if you've got them, you can. Like, I've already done my favorite scenes for this book on an Inking Out Loud episode. So. Yeah, I think I'm good. I think I'm good. I, I think I've talked yeah. about all, like, not all the, but the highlights. So, if we don't yeah, want this to be a four-hour episode. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, let's uh, let's do the final draft then. Okay. I, I have to go get mine. It's been chilling. Okay, Drew. I, I tried to get oh. up a moment ago, but okay, you go on. Yes. Yes. Okay, I've got mine. I right. uh, I have pre-broken the wax seal on this. So, let's see. Craig is really uh, living up to the spirit of the final draft, bringing a bottle of beer with wax, oh, a oh, wax seal on that's it. That's right, it's a wax seal. Drew, I, I'm going to... I This I is it. not what I have been drinking, okay? I, I've... I had, during the course of this recording, <laughs> two cans of this guy so if anybody's watching they can see this but it's um uh, oh no it's backwards so you can't really see it but it's called cowboy goth um it's an american style pilsner very very sweet sweet corn flavors uh it's delicious but uh if you don't like sweet then it is a bit much honestly but that's what that was my drinking beer throughout this episode now i have popped the top on this guy this is oh an extremely attractive bottle that I picked up in Seattle from Holy Mountain Brewing. It's called King's Head. So if we're going for a thematically appropriate <laughs> uh, beer, yep. this recalls the prologue. Is it the prologue, um, uh, or is it day one? What is the it... actual structure is? Yeah. Anyway. At that point. <laughs> but uh, but Kane, if I recall correctly, he does in fact carry around the king's head uh, in the it beginning. Is the prologue, yeah, in the beginning of this book, and so this is yeah. the king's head. Sorry, it, it's not the. It's just called King's Head. This is a double oatmeal brown ale with vanilla and coconut, aged in bourbon barrels. Eleven percent ABV, bottled by Holy Mountain Brewing in Seattle, and uh, I am really looking forward to this i bought two bottles of it this is my first and i'm I've, hoping to, i'm jealous right now i'm hoping to lay up the other for at least another year or four so all right drew uh here we go first sip of uh king's head Ooh, Cheers. i will say look at the head on that for a brown ale oh, it's got a nice, nice tight head also a, a gorgeous Weldworks glass right there. Oh, absolutely. Uh, except no substitute. Oh, my. Oh, my. Oh, wow. Okay. I, com- I, I didn't complain, but I did say I, I warned about the sweetness in the other beer. <laughs> this one with the coconut. 
with the coconut and the vanilla. Oh my gosh, that is it's dessert in a bottle. This Ooh. is delightful. Wow, I am not sad about this at all. Okay, Drew, what you got? You're gonna you're gonna make me go open a pastry stout after this. Oh, this is delicious. <laughs> Just talking my about gosh. it. Oh. oh, okay. Well, I am drinking something very different. It is still sweet. Um, this is a, uh, a sour ale mm. with pineapple, peach, and Florida blossom honey. Mm. Uh, who is this from? Tripping Animals Brewing in Florida. Oh, and it's a collaboration with Corporate Ladder. Oh, ah, nice. Corporate Ladder. I've um, I've definitely had them on the show before. Uh, I think I did a barrel aged barley wine from them for one of our uh, Book of the New Sun episodes, Dissolution. Mm. But uh, this is very nice. Uh, definitely tons of tons of all of that fruit. I mean, it's nothing like super special. It, it's definitely a kettle sour, not like a wild firm or, uh, you know, barrel aged thing. Uh, but it's certainly tasty, 6%. Sounds very bright. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is the can. It's like a purple parrot <laughs> on like a golden blue background. Nice. Uh, but this thematically goes out for Kane just after that quote I read a minute ago when he gears up and steps out onto the sand. Spear is called. It's showtime. Nice. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, yeah. and we're not even watching a German StarCraft II player right now. <laughs> D. Mauer. <laughs> uh, that's excellent. It's showtime. Does he actually say yeah. those words? I don't think he says those words, but it's like... <laughs> okay, that, that would be a bit It's much. pretty close. <laughs> uh, <laughs> let me see if I can pull that up again. You know what? While you're it's... pulling that up, can I just say it is... Um, it was something I didn't talk about with Kane's character that might come up as the series progresses is how, mm. um, how professional he is with his soliloquies as the story goes where, and I don't mean that necessarily as a compliment where it's this thing that has been so ingrained into him where he's in a situation where all he supposedly all he cares about is saving his ex-wife or estranged wife uh, and fighting against the system that Kohlberg has imposed upon him. And in among all that, he is still playing the part that the system has dictated that he play. Uh, yep. So I, I don't know quite what to make of that, but I noticed it. Um Anyway, so, okay, sorry, did you find it? So, uh, yeah. So, Milecoth's, like, whole train rolls in. I guess that's my cue. I pull myself scraping forward and roll headfirst out of the vent. My hands grip its lower rims so I can flip neatly forward and land on my feet. There's no hesitation now. Not even time for a slow breath. There's no profit in any second thoughts. There are no choices left to make. I hook my thumbs behind my belt and stroll out across the arena floor. And this is it. I'm here on the sand in my last arena. It's showtime. <laughs> yeah, that 
that would be perfect to add right there. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I just love how messed up it is. Like, you keep going. As I walk toward him, my chest swells with some inexplicable emotion. I'm nearly there before I can tell what it is. It's happiness, I guess. Oh, gosh. I am, right now, as happy as I will ever be. I look up at Pallas and find her eyes on me, full of horror. That is such a good line because that juxtaposition, like he is finally happy. He is fulfilling everything that he has worked toward uh, by going on this adventure and being the, the hero and saving the girl and all that. And she looks up with horror. Um, it, it, it's a, uh, a great line that has been yeah. foreshadowed by the, the, uh, little excerpts that we get at the beginning the of epigraphs. every day, the epigraphs. Yeah. There you go. That's the word I'm looking Their for. Their arguments. Oh yeah. Always gut punches too. Yeah. Those were so good. Oof. Yeah. So man. All right, Drew. So I love this book. The next I episode <laughs> we're, we're doing blade of Taishal, but we're doing it here on inking out loud for the yes. first episode. Is that right? Yes. Um, and what we're going to do for that is uh, through the end of chapter 11. Uh, there, there are more like traditional just chapter titles instead of days <laughs> in that sure. one. Those are long chapters then. Excuse me. Um, I think there are 23 or 24 chapters it's a big book for anybody uh, who's following along with the is. series. Be warned. It is, um, they don't get, well, they do get smaller after this one. After Blade of Taishal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, yeah. So we'll, we'll do the first 11 chapters. Um, there's also a possibility. I, I will have to see if we can make it work, but we may do a separate bonus episode just on chapter zero. Because that is worth discussing on its own. Uh, But yeah, the first, the first Blade of Taishal episode will be the beginning of the book through the end of chapter 11. And then we will switch back over to the legendarium for chapter 12 to the end of the book. And we'll continue this pattern throughout the series flip-flopping. But like I said, at the top of the episode, if you want easy access to everything, we'll have, uh, we will both have all the episodes on our Patreon uh, feeds. So definitely keep an eye out there. As always, I have been your host, Drew McCaffrey. And with me is my special guest, Craig Hanks. So special. Yes. Thanks, Very, Drew. very special. Yeah. <laughs> Cheers. Uh, I'm, I really wish I could be drinking your beer right now, but. You know what? Your sound, yours sounds pretty delicious too. Let's be honest. Yeah. <laughs> but as always, thanks for listening. And we'll catch you next time.